from the team at CTS, this is the TrainRate Podcast, our show for endurance athletes who want to learn how to train more effectively and improve their performance. I'm Coach Corinne Malcolm, your host for the running edition of the show, where it's my job to interview top coaches, scientists, experts, and athletes in the world of running to bring you actionable training tips you can apply to your training. Make sure you also listen in to our cycling edition of the show with my co-host, Coach Adam Pulford, which alternates weekly with the running episodes. Now, let's dive into the show and learn how you can train right. This episode of the Train Right Podcast is brought to you by the CTS Train Right Membership. The Train Right Membership helps you get the most out of your limited training time so that you can improve your performance and achieve your athletic goals. With the membership, you get access to science-based training plans, an 800-plus workout library, and an app to track your progress, along with advice from professional coaches via an online private form. Go to trainright.com backslash membership to learn where to start and use code TRAINRIGHT for a free 14-day trial. Again, that's code TRAINRIGHT in all capital letters for a free 14-day trial. Our guest today is Addie Bracey. Addie is a professional runner, coach, and sports psychology consultant. Although many of you might know her name from the trails, Addie ran collegiately at the University of North Carolina before becoming a three-time Olympic trials qualifier, once in the 10K and twice in the marathon. She is very, very fast. Since moving to the trails in 2016, Addie has won two U.S. mountain running champs, U.S. trail marathon champs, placed second at Leadville, ninth at Western States, and most recently won, in super impressive fashion, the Run Rabbit Run 100. Not only is Addie fast, she is insanely smart and has a master's degree in sports psychology. And recently she published her first book, Mental Training for Ultra Running, which I will be recommending to all of my athletes as a super important tool. Addie, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you for having me. So I haven't gotten to see you in a while. I saw you back in June at Western States. And I just want to say congratulations on your most recent win at Run Rabbit Run. I was so thrilled for you. And that had to feel really good. Yeah, it felt like it was kind of years in the making. So thank you. Yeah, I was excited to have that outcome after a pretty rough Western State. So a good way to end the year. Yeah, coming back from a DNF can't be easy. And we'll talk, I think we'll get to talk about that a little bit during the show today, but you had a, you had a fan base rooting for you. And so I think we were just, um, I mean, I was texting with like Abby Hall and some other folks and we were just, you know, jumping up and down when those results came through. So big, big congratulations from our end on that. Um, we can't wait to see what you run next, but I brought you onto the show today to talk about the other side of your job. Obviously you're a professional runner, but you were also really brilliant. And you wrote a book during the pandemic year, which I think might be more productive than many of us were. And I just kind of want to get a little bit of a sense for the origin story of that book. Like, why did you write it? Yeah, it was kind of happenstance that it happened uh, during COVID. I think I signed my book deal that winter. So uh, it wasn't the worst time for me to be trapped in my home. (laughs) I think it would have taken me longer to write the book if it wasn't during the pandemic. Um, Yeah, honestly, I wrote the book because I wish the book existed. It didn't, you know, maybe when I first joined the sport, um, I had started grad school in sports psychology, a master's program in sports psychology, actually, like right when I started running ultras. Um, So it was just kind of serendipitous um, that I was exposed to these two worlds that are very much interconnected and related. And um, a lot of it just stemmed from my own curiosity. Uh, I, I was a track athlete. And so transitioning into ultras was pretty hard for me. And I was one of those people who didn't have the success that I thought I would, you know, based on my, my running background. And a lot of it was mental. Um, so I think I was kind of seeking a resource of like, okay, how do, how do I figure this piece out? Uh, and the resource didn't really exist. So uh, it kind of started as, oh man, someone should really like write a book about this or write some kind of literature content about this. Um, and through some conversations with the mentors was kind of like, well, I, maybe I'm a good person to do it. Um, I have the training and, and the experience in psychology, but also in the sport. Um, so it was a really cool year of writing. Probably one of the most beneficial like professional things I've done too. I basically just got to like study sports psychology and ultra running for like a year and a half. So uh, it was a, it was a hard project, but it was really rewarding. And 
I hope that it's helpful to people. Um, I wish that, yeah, something like that had existed a couple years ago when I first came into the sport. Yeah, I hope it's a tool that many of our athletes will get to benefit from down the road. I personally, I come from a ski background and I definitely, did you ever read Terry Orlick's um, In Pursuit of Excellence? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was like my sports psych Bible um, coming up in skiing, just like for having having tool sets. And I find I found that your book had a similar flavor in the sense where it was like very, it's very practical. So we'll keep talking about it throughout the course of this interview, but it is, it's a practical, it's a practical guide that is going to give athletes tools that they can put into practice. So I think that's, I don't know. I, I wish that I had had that too, um, coming into the sport. I think it's very specific to our ultra running audience and that they're going to benefit a lot from it. And I, I also love what you said there about, you know, you came into the sport as a very, very fast runner. You're very decorated on the road and on the track, um, having run collegiately and then post-collegiately very successfully, I would say. Um, and yet, you know, I get to stand on the start line with people like you and I come from a ski background and I would I would pride myself on kind of being a slower runner in that sense from a PR standpoint, but we all get to duke it out there on the trail. There's a leveling that happens. And so, you know, we probably joke with some of our athletes that ultra running success is, you know, 80% mental. And while it's probably impossible to actually quantify that for every individual and every race, that's going to be different. I'm wondering from your experience over the past, you know, like, let's say two years of studying, of being in the sport, of writing this thing, you know, through your own experience and coaching athletes. I know you coach as well. Um, what might you pinpoint there? that sets like sets that mental side apart from the physical side, right? Like what, what can we look at as like, oh, these are the things that sets a fast runner or any runner up for failure potentially in ultra running due to the, not the physicality, but the, the psychological component of it. Yeah, you're right. And I'll say like my thesis about like why I wanted to write the book was kind of what you just described, right? Is you know, I, I kind of had this theory. And again, these are just my opinions. They're not based on actual research. But I kind of thought, you know, if you were to take the top 10 finishers at, um, I don't know, the Olympic 5k final or 10k final, and were to do all the physiological testing and measurements and to look at their training, they're all doing probably versions of the same thing. They all are like probably very physiologically gifted. Uh, and if anything, the people that are performing better probably have some marker. Um, that's suggesting that. And I'm not saying that the mental piece doesn't make up a component of those kinds of racing, like races and those distances. Of course it does. But if you were to take a Western state and do the same testing on the top 10 finishers at Western state, you know, it's going to be all over the map. And so I'm never suggesting that ultras aren't physical. You know, you got to have the training and the the talent and the skills that has to be there. But I guess my opinion is that like the threshold, the barrier for entry is is lower and that the psychological piece makes up a bigger piece of the pie. I think it's more important, or at least equally as important. And it maybe takes up a bigger piece of the pie than some more traditional distances. You know, it doesn't matter how mentally sound you are. If you don't have a certain um, physical skill set, you're not going to run a 15, 10, 5K, like no matter what, you know, but we've seen uh, some really amazing things happen on the trails. And so I guess that's the way I describe it is I just think that the things that you face out on the trail, uh, if you're not psychologically and mentally prepared, has the potential to really derail you maybe more than some than more some traditional distances uh just the sheer number of uncontrollables in ultra and trail racing is that was a big learning curve for me you know i was used to racing in pretty controlled environments and there's there's nothing controlled about being out on the trails um so in our sport specifically i guess some of the big key things i've seen are that uh the lack of control and the way that athletes approach that you see people like yourself and the Courtney's and the, you know, all the leaders in the sport are very like adaptable and maybe aren't rattled by things that pop up in a race. It's just treated as part of racing ultras instead of like an inconvenience or something bad that's happening. So that's a big piece, the adaptability and problem solving and kind of staying calm. Um, another piece I think that can be tough is the, the gap between like practical experience in training and then race demands. Um, you know, if you're training for, a marathon, you're probably doing an 18 mile long run, like pretty close to marathon effort or something like that. At least I did when I was training for marathons. So you're not hitting exactly race demands, but you're getting, you're getting it within striking distance. But for an ultra, I mean, you're doing what, like a 35 mile run before a hundred mile race. So 
um, the self-belief and the confidence and the calmness to believe that you're capable of something that really you have no tangible actual evidence to say that you can <laughs> recently is like a big, that was hard for me. I'm like, what the heck? I don't know. Like, how do I know if I'm ready to, and I coach myself. So that was like a hard part is like, no idea if I'm ready for a hundred. My 35 mile run went well, but that's like a third of the distance. So um, kind of long-winded, but yeah, I think it's just the sheer level of uncontrollables and so many factors that are not small things or big things that require a lot more like mental and psychological resilience, um, adaptability, problem solving, and then just like discomfort. I mean, again, you talk about, I, I think back to my 5k and 10k days and I'm like, okay, the last mile is going to be really hard. So that's like what, five minutes, six minutes. And in an ultra, you're talking about suffering for 12 hours or more. So um, even that piece too is not necessarily not necessarily learning how to suffer, but at least to coexist with pain and discomfort. And maybe to, I, I talk about the stuff that happens in races is like we're constantly information processing or processing information and uh, being able to tell what is feedback and what's a distraction. And sometimes pain is just a distraction and, and needs to be treated that way. And that takes practice. Yeah, it's like, it's like the emotional response to that pain is what becomes like the bigger indicator of success or not, right? It's that like you, you, there are control, like there are lots of uncontrollables, obviously in our sport, but there are controllables. And I do think that like those, those skill sets that we're going to talk about in a little bit are so important for ultra runners, both at the highest level and at the everyman level to really have a handle on because that is going to determine, you know, when you're sitting at the mile 78 station and you don't want to continue if you're going to get back out of that chair. I also love that I mean, obviously, I I raced on loan for a college cross country team um, for running. Like, did not was not my was not my main sport. But I I love the there. There's a forgiving aspect of ultras. I think at mm -hmm. at all levels where it's like if something goes wrong, you also have time to course correct, and so that's like a an uncomfortable mm -hmm. gift that we all get in our sport. So it's like you have to learn the, the you have to develop the the skills and the tool set to be able to course correct. Obviously, but um, I do like that we have you you have a low and it's okay versus it's a lot harder to have a low and still hit that Olympic marathon trials time, you know, at CIM or something. That's a very different a different ball game when that that slips um unfortunately. But I think one of the the, the, what, the my favorite chapter of of your book I think besides the injury chapter. And we're not going to talk about injury um injury psychology today, but um, because I'm personally slowly recovering from injury. So I really loved that chapter. But the second chapter of the book, really kind of the intro in a lot of ways is about, about why, like, why might you do something kind of those intrinsic motivators. And we've all experienced, you know, telling someone you run a hundred, you mentioned this in the book, you tell someone you've run a hundred and they're like a first response is like, well, why, why do you run hundreds? And that's not a bad question. Obviously, that's a good that's a good question to ask. And so I'm wondering, I know that we stress that importance with our athletes, like of knowing your why. And I'm wondering, I'm keep using the word why a lot here. Why is that important? And what does that look like in practice to establish that why? Yeah, I mean, part of it is training for ultras is time consuming, like it takes a lot of time, it takes a lot of motivation. Um, I think this the story I shared in the book that was a good example of this is, is Claire Gallagher. And her kind of connection to her personal, um, I don't know, like missions job, you know, of advocacy and climate justice and that kind of thing. And so I, when I say that, I don't even necessarily mean why just in the sense of like, why I won't run this race, but really connecting it to your life and your personal values. Um, it, it makes you more invested in the outcome. It makes the process itself feel like purposeful. Um, and I think you're right. A lot of us do like, yeah, yeah, I know it's important to have a why, but most people don't necessarily sit down and like think about it and identify it and kind of uh, decide what living that out would look like. Uh, and I think I, I had experienced in my own personal career of uh, training and going through the motions and putting the time in, but really not being like connected to the process of like competing. And I wasn't racing well, even though the training was there and the preparation was there, it was there's just like, there's a level that wasn't being unlocked because I wasn't like necessarily connected to the outcome. Uh, and that doesn't even have to be the objective outcome. It could be connected to the process. And um, I mean, that's why I run ultras is, um, you know, the, the experience of it and the feeling of pushing yourself through those, like I'll, I'll run ultras and race ultras until I can't anymore, you know, far beyond when I'm winning races. 
Um, so yeah, I just found that it makes it more enjoyable. It also surprisingly, um, it, it sounds counterintuitive. I just went through this exercise with an athlete yesterday, but I talk a lot about like values based living and we're not just athletes, like we're multidimensional people. And when I think back to times in my career where I was really focused uh, when I was a track athlete uh, and thought that like to be the most com committed athlete and to have the best chance of success, like that needed to be the top priority. You know, if it was a decision between going to a friend's wedding and a race that was that weekend, like I was going to go to the race. If it was a decision between um, I'm tired, I don't really feel like getting up and doing the training, but I'm going to do it. it, whatever it was, it was always, I'm going to choose the thing that means I'm more dedicated to the sport. And the results actually weren't that great. <laughs> and, 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 and like, even more importantly, I didn't enjoy it that much. Uh, and then when things aren't going well, there's this resentment factor of like, God, I was putting everything into it. And it, and it wasn't, it gave, I don't even know that it was worth it. And now that that thing didn't happen, like, what am I even connected to? So I even kind of mean just why in general, like as a person, how do you want to go out and exist in the world and interact with the world? And what I found is that when you can do that, number one, when you're out there on the trails doing a seven hour run by yourself, you, you, there's, you know, you know, it's purposeful, even if it's not enjoyable in the moment, you can connect it back to like why this is important, why this is part of your like personal mission statement, which I think is an exercise in the book. But on the other token, I, I like am juggling more in my life now than I ever have professionally and arguably just competed better than I ever have um, because I'm not just an athlete and I have other things that are important to me. So when I do something like uh, a day when I'm really busy with work and clients and I maybe miss my run or cut my run short or whatever it is, like I don't see that as me abandoning my athletic pursuits. I see it as me investing my time in another value that's equally as important. Um, so it's kind of a holistic, comprehensive thing of really just like your why for how are you going to spend your time on this planet and how does running fit into that? And how does running connect to all the other ways that you want to spend your time in a way that just makes you feel super fulfilled? Uh, it really sets people up for success, but more importantly, to just be happier and healthier and have a more um, productive and healthy athletic identity. Yeah, it feels much more holistic. And I think that ultra running naturally has maybe more of a holistic flavor to it than these Olympic discipline sports. I've been in that same boat where it was like, you know, you're working every single day for this thing that's going to maybe happen in four years. And there's no guarantee that it's going to happen in four years. It's very different than going to medical school or law school or getting a master's mm -hmm. degree where it's like, if you do the work, there's this definitive outcome. And in Olympic sport, it's like, so not the case. You do the work, you do the work every day for four years. And at the end of that Olympic cycle, you might have nothing, you know, quote unquote, nothing to show for it. It's it's this, this devastating experience um, that my household knows all too well on the mountain bike and, and in the sport of biathlon. So we were probably in a very similar position towards the end of your track and road career and towards the end of my biathlon career and Stephen's mountain bike career is that it wasn't fulfilling anymore. And you kind of, I felt like the whys had to be flexible. Like, yes, I want to make this team or I want to run this time, but that like I like what you say about values, about having other things that align with with your why. And I'm wondering, you know, yes, we're talking about high performance athletics, but at the same time, like you and I both work with with parents, with moms and dads and people who have these careers. And I'm wondering how can those athletes have this like use this like kind of fluid value in their why to let it adapt so that they can continue to have that why motivate them while, you know, the things in their life might be shifting around a little bit. And so their why has to shift around to you. Like what, what can that look like in practice? Yeah. I'm a big believer in your why being flexible. And, and honestly, I'm a big believer in values being flexible. I don't think that that's necessarily, there might be some trends throughout life, but those things change too. I had an athlete recently, um, who was getting ready to race a big race that he had been preparing for, for a long time and was uh, kind of stressed or dealing with a little bit of a lack of confidence for maybe not doing as much of training as he wanted to, or had intended to. And as we talked further, it came out like he had a newborn. There just like, wasn't as much time. And so one of the things that was cool was by having this conversation of like, well, actually like you should feel very, you should feel great, right? Like you were juggling these two really important values of, yeah, I still want to have some autonomy and I still want to push myself um, and have the space in my life to go after something that, that is important to me, this race. But also I'm a new dad and I'm a husband and a partner. And um, it, it wasn't, once you can reframe the perspective of thinking like, oh man, I didn't, I didn't train as much as I needed to. And instead see, 
actually, I put in a heck of a good effort with the time that I had while I was also committing time and effort into these other things that are important. So I, I can't remember where I read this, but this concept just like blew my mind and, and kind of has changed things for me and how I live my life in the sense that it could at surface level appear to be restrictive to think like, okay, let me pick like four values that are important to me. And then that's going to like guide how I live my days. But actually it's, it's the opposite. It's very um, empowering and like broadens the options for the day, right? Like if you have four or five different things that are really important to you, then you can walk away from a day instead of saying like, Oh, I'm so mad at myself that I only ran six miles when I had eight on my schedule. And instead say like, cool, I, I did, I put an hour in towards getting to be a better athlete. I had a wonderful dinner with my family. I, whatever, you know, related to work or whatever your values are. Um, so kind of thinking about it that way, I think can cause some comfort and also just some empowerment and, and help people recognize, like, it's not just about checking the miles off the list. And so with that example in mind, like, yeah, values and why is going to change over time. It's going to adapt and it, and it should. And in some ways, that's maybe where I see more of a sticking point is where people's lifestyle and maybe situation changes, but they're not willing to adapt. That was me when I went to grad school. And you know, I went to grad school while I was coaching full time at a high school while I was competing and training as a professional athlete. And so in my mind, I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm still going to train the same amount, this is the same dedication. I'm going to get my nap every day. I'm going to get my nine hours of sleep. And it was like <laughs> the first year I was like, no, I have to. And it was, I was unwilling and I was commuting an hour and a half each way. So I was unwilling to adapt and change my values. Raced terribly that year. Then my second year of grad school, like totally shifted everything, uh, my perspective and, and how I was looking at my days and was training less, but racing better because I was seeing, you know, the days that I was in class and at internship all day was like, okay that I didn't get my run in I just worked at the Olympic Training Center for three hours and that's that's also a value and like a goal that I have as a, as a human um, so sometimes the rigidness and resistance to shifting those things and like maybe addressing those things causes more of an issue than being willing to do that which is kind of interesting how that works out yeah I think that we've all I mean I've been there I was like yes this resonates with me I have been this person I think Brad Stuhlberg maybe that was one of the people who's written about it I feel like he's been a saving grace in my life talking about balance this idea that I could I had this notion that I could balance everything perfectly like oh everything will be in balance at all times like that's holistic and it's like actually probably not like and I think that aligns with those whys and those values where it's like even within a training cycle or like a race cycle right like there's going to be times where things are dramatically out of balance for a short period of time because you know like you're leaning into that why for the race and maybe that means you have, a, have to lean out of like family responsibilities for that that weekend or that week or whatever it is and I think as long as you're upfront with yourself and know that you might still have to be adaptable on top of that but it's this that has saved me the whole idea where like balance is a fallacy and that like we can we can adapt that stress is stress and I think that that's an important message for everyone is that yeah you're right like you couldn't train quite as much but you raced better because you found this way to like you know even even the stress scales out a little bit um which we'll talk I think more about as we like talk about like putting this into practice like in the in the pre-race phase but kind of one last question on this why because I really like the section about kind of goals um, and I talk with all my athletes about like, okay, let's let's have manageable goals. Let's have, you know, these things that we're going we're to check the boxes, right, type of thing. And I, I think, you know, I look at like my teammate, Tom Evans, um, and he stresses this idea of process, not performance, or, you know, it's about the journey, not the outcome. And I think it's easy to say, and it's sometimes hard to practice, but I'm wondering, you know, what does that, what does that mean as far as, you know, in terms of like having a goal strategy is one better than the other as far as like focusing on on what you're doing day in and day out that process aspect versus like here is my a goal at this a race and like how does that how does that balance out as far as like putting weights into those different types of goals yeah i guess the way that i like to think about that when i hear the comment process over outcome or yeah process over performance i don't think of it as in the sense of like the event, like the journey is worth more than the destination or more impor important necessarily, or I don't look at it as suggesting that the outcome isn't important. I mean, we're, we do an objective sport. Like I very much care if I win a race or not, is that going to like, am I not going to go on the journey if I know that that's not going to happen? No, I still am, but I'm not going to pretend like I don't want to like quote unquote, win whatever, whatever win is in that moment. 
But I think of it more as uh, suggesting where your the the majority of your focus and attention should be. So when I think about like an outcome goal, I always have some pushback from athletes when I when I say this at first. But the outcome, like in and of itself, isn't necessarily within your control. You can't. I can't just like have in my head right now say like I I want to win this race and then that's it. I kind of stop there and then I do my training and then I get there. And I'm like, okay, I just want to win this race and there was like no other thought put into it. It's if that's the objective, if you want to get to this place, how do you get there? Like, what are the points along the way? How do you know if you're getting closer to the destination? What are like the different turns? Like, what does it look like? And so when you can kind of back up and see that, uh, the process becomes just maybe more of the focal point. And this is on a macro scale, you know, like within a training block, but this is in a micro scale, like within, within a race. Like I've seen myself make huge mistakes in races where all I had in my head was like, I have to podium or I have to place fifth or whatever place I needed to get in that race or that I thought I needed to get. And that's all I'm thinking about. And I'm running like so urgent and like not stopping long at aid stations. And all I can think about is like fifth place or third place or whatever it is. Uh, and it's not productive. It's not something that's in your control in the moment. It's not something that um, it, it, it takes your focus away from the present, which is really all you have control over. So I guess I kind of think of um, focusing on the process and the journey as just being where the majority of your energy should be, it's not suggesting that the the destination isn't important. And then in, in the sense of goals, I mean, yeah, process goals are where um, there's there's three kinds of goals in sports psychology. There's um, performance goals, outcome goals, and process goals. Process goals should take up most of your effort and attention. Um, it it also serves as kind of like guideposts and uh, like focus and attention. I have to be careful not to go on a tangent is once you can understand, like what I can just like go off and start talking, but focus and attention. Um, when you think about it in a very like objective psychological sense, that's what racing is. It's distraction management a hundred percent. And so when you have process goals, you kind of only, not only have like built in um, like breadcrumbs to make sure you're still on your path to reach the outcome you want, but you have built in like focal points to help manage distractions that might pop up. If you weren't thinking about those things or you didn't have these process goals of like, okay, if, it, if this is my goal, where, where do I, like, how do I need to execute this race? So it serves to both, yeah, give you the feedback of like, okay, you're on the right track. You don't need to be thinking about mile 100 right now. Like you knew that this is where you wanted to be in this moment, or this is what needed to happen in this moment. Uh, but it also serves as a point to kind of like bring that attention back when it does start to like stray towards um, the various distractions. So outcome and performance goals, they have a place. They're motivating. It's there is a purpose. It's hard to know how to get somewhere if you don't even know where you're going. Um, so they, it's not that like they deserve to be a part of the equation and they deserve to be um, thought about and invested in. But most of the success and most of the productive, um, I don't know, the, most of like the, the productiveness comes from focusing more on the process goals, uh, both like I said in the macro and the micro sense. Yeah, I've always been of the mindset, and I think it's because I just watched athletes spiral, like at a, at a, um, I don't even have a, like a junior level competitively of like being so caught up in that, like as you said, like I need to be fifth, I need to be first, I need to be third, whatever it is, as opposed to focusing on the like things that they could control. The like, I always tell my athletes, I'm like, okay, like we've got this A goal and this B goal and this C goal for this race, but we also have like the check-ins like mm-hmm. am i taking care of myself am i running within my means in this moment am i hydrating am i eating am i did i take care of my feet have i done a systems check like what what's going on type of thing and i'm always like you know if you do the little things if we do the little things in training every day if we do the little things in training every block if we do the little things in the race the outcome that we want should just happen in a way mm-hmm. like that's kind of like maybe that's you know uh not dissociative but like uh I, I, for me personally, that's always alleviated that stre- that performance stress is like, I'm doing the little things, therefore, this should be the outcome type of thing, as opposed to being like, I have to wrap all my energy. And I think I've taken that into my, my coaching strategy and prepping athletes for these races, too, is like the, we're gonna have these little check ins. And we've got these outcome goals, but we're gonna try to stay you know, oriented towards putting most of our energy into the things that we can, you know, control in the moment or in the next moment versus, I don't know. Yeah. That obsession of the time Mm -hmm. oftentimes with our athletes, right. It's not necessarily place even it's a, it's a time I want to finish under 24 hours or under 30 hours or 
whatever it is. And I've seen that spiral by mile 30 of a race because it's too, it's too obsessive. So mm-hmm. thinking about obviously, you know, the things that we have to do during race day. And like you've mentioned, ultra is a weird sport where we don't get close to our race time in training, right? Like we've got to, we've got to bridge a huge gap here. So what can athletes do? Like what are some of the important things that they can take into their lives today, into their training over the winter, you know, in, into all those moments to prep for the challenges that they might face during race day? Like what can they put into practice? Yeah, I guess to go back to the point I was making kind of earlier, when, when I've reflected on races, um, a lot my own, actually like the Western States to Run Rabbit Run uh, those two experiences were so polarizing. And I think actually like very good examples of this concept that I'm going to talk about, which is um, information processing, like I was talking about earlier, I'm pretty big on the brain and just understanding how the brain works. It makes me feel better sometimes because what I try and tell most athletes is like, even though it doesn't feel like this, like your brain is not trying to sabotage you. It really isn't. You're on the same team. And when it's doing things that maybe feel self-sabotaging, uh, it's actually just trying to protect you or you know, there's some kind of like core issue happening. Um, so I, I'm really big on kind of understanding these things. And when I started to think about some of my races um, and processing information, like I said earlier, there's feedback and there's distractions. And I was very much confusing the two. Like when I can think back to some races that I did really poorly, like a Western state, right? Like where, what place I was in, how fast I was running, where the other women were, how long they were stopping at aid stations. That was all distraction that I was taking as feedback of like, okay, I got to keep hustling. I got to stay in this position. Uh, The heat, my nutrition, the fact that I was running out of water between aid stations, I was treating that as a distraction. Like this is really annoying that I feel so hot. This is really annoying that I'm so thirsty. Uh, When in fact it was like the opposite. I should have been treating the other things as a distraction uh, and treating this stuff that was happening in my body as feedback. Um, So that's something that takes practice. That's something that you can do all day constantly. That's not like an, um, a situation isolated to sport. That's a situation we're all facing probably in our jobs, just in day-to-day life. So the better you can get at sifting through the information that we're constantly getting day in and day out and get better at recognizing, okay, which of this information is feedback that I can take and then uh, kind of analyze and say, does, is this something that like, should I be changing what I'm doing right now? Like, is this feedback that is suggesting like, oh, okay, maybe I should do this and adapt and pivot. Is this feedback that I'm doing things well, that I should keep doing what I'm doing? Or is this a distraction and a distraction that just needs to be like dismissed? And that's, that's something that takes practice too. It's not easy to just ignore things that are distractions. Like that's why they're called distractions. Um, so th- even just kind of taking that into day-to-day life and into training can help um, athletes just become like better at that in general. I guess the other piece, which is similar to that, um, I would say probably the hands down most important skill, probably as a human being, honestly, but definitely as an athlete is just self-awareness, like wanting to understand yourself better. Um, we, we probably don't take a look and analyze like our behaviors and what's causing those behaviors on a day-to-day basis as much as we should. Um, whether that's, you know, from a training standpoint, from productivity at work, like whatever it is, times I've done that and like been honest with myself and, and, and realized like, oh man, I said, I said, I really wanted to accomplish this goal. But when I reflect on my last week, like there was actually a lot of behaviors that kind of conflicted with that. That didn't, that aren't really getting me any closer to that. So, um, yeah, I think just kind of like information processing, understanding feedback and distractions, um, kind of inherently helps with the self-awareness, but really just understanding, you know, we're constantly, uh, I guess I described humans like the brain as being like association machines, like things are happening every day. And then we kind of are reacting because of it. Uh, that's how, you know, it's, it makes it efficient, but it also creates kind of bad habits in some ways. So kind of just taking time in this winter period when it's in some ways like an off season and understanding yourself better, understanding what kind of environment, thoughts, feelings lead to the behaviors you want and what kind of environment, thoughts and feelings lead to the behaviors that you don't want um, gives you a lot of insight into yourself and can kind of take all this information and knowledge, you know, into post winter and the spring into racing season where you just have a jump start on really understanding what makes you tick in the way that you want to and maybe what's kind of standing in the way. Uh, of the things that you want to accomplish. So I don't know if that was tangible enough, but in terms of the the feedback and distraction exercise, I have athletes do that the week before a race, you know, let's go through and identify the different things that might pop up 
is that a distraction or is that feedback? And that could change based on the point in the race. It could change and, you know, whether it's mile 50 or 80 or whatever it is. Um, but yeah, maybe even doing that in day-to-day life. I know I could be more productive just in general. Yeah, I was gonna say, I think I, 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 I joke that I do so much better with those things when I pin a bib on, like I'm terrible mm-hmm. at it in my day-to-day life, but you put a race bib on me and it's like, I can troubleshoot really well. So I think that's a great, like we should all be practicing that. And I'm wondering, this is kind of something that I've always hung on to a little bit in, in w- within like sports psych is that there are things happening around me, but I get to, I get to choose how I react to them. And is that part of that information processing thing? Like it's in a lot of ways it's emotional and I'm not saying emotions are bad here, but it is like, be it, be it information processing or understanding that it's a distraction and, and you get to choose how you react to it. How is that just akin to that practice? Or is there something specific there about like going through the motions of understanding how you traditionally react and what, how you're going to change, you know, in the moment and during training, during your work day, during the race, that emotional response to that distraction. Yeah. I mean, it's all those things are habits and and you, you make a good point when there's emotions involved, it can be harder. Um, a, a lot of times too, you have to really consider like biology and our nervous system and fight or flight. You know, a lot of times when there's emotions involved or um, something's more heightened or intense, we kind of dip into that like sympathetic nervous system, like fight or flight mode, which is less logical thinking. It's less like rational thinking and more instinct. Um, so that's, I actually literally this morning was reading a, a book about, about some of these things, but it was talking about like the reasons why firefighters do drills and repeat things so many times is because it's to build in this habit. So when there are emotions present or when there is this like, sort of, like uh, higher pressure or um, what's the word I'm looking for? Like there's more at stake they can still make the right decisions. And so the problem as athletes is like when we feel nervous or we feel urgent in a race when things aren't going well, those, those are moments when our sympathetic nervous system is kind of taking over. And we're in some ways at the mercy of, of just like how our minds are going to decide to react or respond. And without practicing those things, um, which it could even just be imagery and visualization. Like it's very hard to simulate that. It's very hard to like, just put yourself in that situation on a weekly basis to practice. But if you're not thinking about it, you're kind of just at the mercy of how your your mind decides to react. And so I think of like responding and reacting as being two different things. Reacting is kind of like, oh, I just like quickly made a decision and maybe didn't like logically think it through. I just went based on the emotions and like how my body was feeling um, versus like responding, which is more analytical. But sometimes there's not time for that. So, yeah, it, it's important to kind of go through these process like processes of thinking about this ahead of time which isn't fun. It's not just fun to think about all the things that, that will go wrong. But I didn't think about that for my first 100 mile race. My first 100 mile race, I, <laughs> I'm i embarrassed to say this now, but I came into the sport and like did pretty well early on. I did my first 50 mile. I think I did 250 miles in like a two month period and was like, I'm crushing it. Like I got this thing figured out. <laughs> so I may, I may as well do 100 in, in two months. That, sound, that sounds like I'm going to nail it. So I do Leadville 100. I like do all the training. I'm like, I got this. Like I could win this thing in my sleep. Uh, and, and every, when everything derailed, I panicked. I was like, what is happening? I'm throwing up. I've never thrown up before. Like what's going on? My feet hurt so bad. Um, and literally with like having a full blown panic attack in the race, like, I don't know what to do. I'm freaking out. Like, this is not good. And then I think back to run rabbit run and I'm like running five miles to go puking, like not even stopping, like doesn't even bother me. Um, because of like my perception of what the, the thing meant before it meant like, radar like red flags like lights are going off like this isn't this is not good crisis crisis um because I hadn't thought about it or planned it and I hadn't kind of ingrained in my mind of like this isn't a dire situation you this is okay uh and so now kind of having been exposed to those things my mind is like eh, if things get serious we'll let you know but you're fine keep running everything's cool so I kind of got on a tangent there but it's just funny to think back to myself even in these scenarios and and remember how my mind reacted in those moments of like sheer panic yeah, versus having that, you're right, like firefighters, EMTs, first responders, these people, right, that they are uh, like military personnel, right? They they are put through simulated scenarios so that when they get to that actual scenario, they don't panic, ideally, right? That's that's the goal. The goal is that that training is is hard enough that the actual crises event that they're in isn't as hard. And I can, ultra training isn't exactly like that, but I kind of I tell athletes like, hey, intervals are going to be hard, right? Like maybe you don't want to do them. Maybe you're going to sit in your car at the trailhead for 20 (laughs) minutes. Like that's okay because we're practicing 
like being uncomfortable. We're practicing, you know, taking on this thing that might not make us feel good the whole time. Like you're going to have self-doubt. I have, there are so many interval sessions that I finish and I'm like, oh gosh, like that was terrible. I'm terrible. And then I like go look at the data and I'm like, oh, it felt terrible because I was running really hard. Mm-hmm. Like I'm actually in okay <laughs> shape. Like it takes hindsight, but in a race, you don't always have that, which is like just a conundrum of, I think, experience. You, you speak to experience. you like your first episode vomiting during a hundred panic next episodes vomiting during ultras you're like oh okay like this happens right like it's a weird sport that sometimes that's why we do say like age oftentimes is a huge benefit in the sport because experience is hard to top because training can't merge that that gap bridge the gap between the longest training you'll ever do and you know running utmb or western states or leadville so such good things to put into practice and then i'm wondering we talked a lot about like things going wrong in races so to kind of move us forward and the, they've done the training, they're physically prepped. Hopefully they've got, they've done some mental prep. I always talked about, I joked in skiing that I always got nervous before races and we would joke that, you know, you're just getting the butterflies in your stomach into like V formation, like ready to fly. Like it's okay to be nervous. We just need to like orient this in a positive direction. And I'm wondering what can athletes do when they do have that, they feel that stress or that pressure going into an, a race environment. I, you know, I look at, UTMB. And I honestly think one of the reasons why we, I'm going to, I'm going to generalize here. We as Americans. Okay. And the women have done better than the men there. Like we will say that historically, but we don't do well there. And I wonder if part of it is because we blow it out of proportion. We say, this is UTMB. It means more. It's more important. It's really hard, but the truth is it's just another hundred. So what can athletes do when they feel that stress or pressure going into any race or maybe it's their a race like how can they handle that how can they adapt to it yeah that's a good question i mean and you make a good point ultra running is unique in the sense that it's not like you can just get into races you know sometimes it takes many years of trying to get through a lottery and that kind of thing so um and then even if you can get into races you're not doing that many a year you know i remember back to when i was racing shorter distances and i might race 12 times a year and now i race like maybe three so it makes it easy to put a race on a pedestal when we're not getting that opportunity very often or when that race could have been two or three years in the making or like a race like UTMB, which is so um, just like the pinnacle of ultra running. You know, we can kind of, like you said, add all this, give it this extra power that maybe it doesn't necessarily deserve. Um, and, and what that does is it it provides a scenario when there's like so much at stake. Like it's no wonder that our brains get anxious and nervous um, and, and maybe yeah, to the point where it's anxiety, when we make something so big and make it into something that's so huge uh, that it can feel like daunting or overwhelming. And at the same time, you don't want to sway too far to the other side and minimize something to the point where, and you know, I've seen athletes do that as well, where maybe they have such a fear of making a race so big that they almost like make it not big enough. You know, it still is a big deal. So it's a fine line. Um, and then it's really helpful to understand the physiological sensations that we call like nervousness and anxiousness and anxiety and that kind of thing. It, it's, it is like our nervous system. It is an appropriate response if it's at the appropriate time. So like, obviously if you're feeling that nervous and anxious a week out or even three days out from a race, like that can be an issue. My, my thing is that I don't, I get really nervous the day before races and I don't, I don't usually sleep. And, um, one of the things I realized is it's not necessarily the physiological symptoms that we're experiencing. It's what we think they mean. So I used to think that meant, oh, I'm feeling nervous and anxious. Like wh- whatever I was feeling in my body, the butterflies, the kind of sweating, the kind of like, oh man, something big is happening tomorrow. I interpreted it as anxiety and nervousness, which I took to mean I didn't train hard enough. I'm not ready. I'm not prepared. And something someone said to me one time was, uh, nervousness and excitement feel like very similar. You know, I think back to like being a kid at Christmas and I also didn't sleep the night before, but I was, I, I interpreted it as like, oh, I'm so excited tomorrow. Like Santa Claus is coming. Um, so now I try and approach it that way of like, yeah, I'm excited. Like tomorrow is going to be a big adventure. And so I feel the same, but because I give it a different meaning, I still don't sleep before races usually. I mean, a couple hours maybe, but not a lot. Um, but it doesn't impact me anymore because I don't think of it as meaning anything negative. But there are times when it can, like I said, the further out from a race, uh, the more of an issue that it is. So a lot of times when an athlete describes feeling pressure expectations, my first question is like, where's that coming from? Because sometimes it's coming from nowhere. Sometimes it's coming from them. I had an athlete recently that I coach that like 
ran a race and then she was disappointed and I thought it was a really great effort and like better than I expected. And she was like, well, I, I missed my goal of this time. And I was like, well, where did you get that time from? She's like, I don't know. I just like pulled out a random time. Like there was just like no basis of this pressure she was putting on herself for this thing. But in the same token, like I work with a lot of professional athletes who like compete for a living where there is real tangible pressure and expectation to perform. And if not, then, you know, it's going to impact their livelihood. So pressure can be a real thing as well. So um, I think it mostly just comes down to perception of what it means. Uh, and then at the end of the day, this is the most important piece actually is it doesn't matter if what is true and not true. It matters whether or not it's productive for you. So if the way that you're feeling about a race isn't productive, then you can adjust and change how you're interpreting information to feel the way that you want to feel. I'm, I'm good at that. If there's, if there's real tangible pressure on me, I'm, I'm kind of good at not internalizing it. I'm good at kind of like uh, interpreting it or um, what's the word, like manipulating it into being something that is productive for me. And that's really kind of what it comes down to as a human is just taking the reality around you and knowing how to interpret it uh, and, and if needed, kind of shift its meaning to have the most productive impact on you. I don't know if that makes sense. That's kind of, I guess, vague in a way. Um, but yeah, it's really just seeing how, how you're personally being impacted and affected and doing what you need to do to kind of have a more productive and positive approach towards your competition. Yeah, no, I think it makes a ton of sense. I think that there's all this internalized, oftentimes it's like, we think it's external, but it's actually internal pressure and like, just like getting getting our heads around that. I mean, I see that at a junior level, I coached junior skiers for a long time, and they'd be nervous before races. And I'd be like, hey, like, what's going on? Like, you're like, no matter what happens today, like, are your parents still going to love you? And they'd be like, yeah. And I'd be like, okay, is, are, is your big sister still going to love you or your big brother? And they're like, yeah. And I'm like, okay. Like, I was like, am I still going to love you? And they're like, yeah. I'm like, okay. Then like, what are you nervous about? Like the worst case scenario is it doesn't go as well as you were hoping. But the truth of the matter is, is that it does, that doesn't change your value as a human, as a person. And like, it's insane that we feel that as adults in the sport that our self-worth can get tied up in this. But, you know, I've seen it with 11 year olds. Mm -hmm. So it's like this lesson that we've internalized over time. You know, I have to get good grades. I have to, you know, be as good as I can in my sport or my activity. Um, it's like this pressure that I think society from a societal a aspect is probably very internalized over time. But, you know, I think it's really important that we, we continue to have athletes, you know, approach that topic and learn that lesson. And so we've talked about stress and pressure. Obviously, you know, I try to prep every athlete going into a long race saying, hey, like at some point in time, like it, like we we hope for the best, we prepare for the worst. Like we hope that it goes smooth, but things are likely going to go sideways because it's an ultra and you mm -hmm. pin a bib on and like what's going to go wrong might go wrong. And so what can athletes do in the race? You know, is that adapting? Is that just being okay with it? You know, what can an athlete do when everything is going sideways or even just a, a single thing is going sideways? Yeah, I, this, I feel like I just experienced this kind of like the game changing. I, I had a, a person, a race director kind of call me out before I ran this last race and say like, you got to change what you're doing. It's not working for you. And I'm like, oh, you noticed? Because I noticed that too. Uh, it, it, it wasn't working. And it was a similar thing where, yeah, every time I was in a race and things went wrong, I took it as feedback that like things weren't going well, or I took it as it was almost like a nuisance. I'm like, does this race not know that I have like, I have a plan. I'm about to crush this race. And it's really just like inconveniencing me. Uh, and instead, you know, he kind of talked to me like, you gotta, you, you gotta like take the race as it's coming to you. Let it come to you. Don't try and like force this agenda. And so I went into this last race of like, okay, I'm going to try this new approach where I just address what's happening in the moment. And I'm, and I'm not going to stress about like what that means for the rest of the race. And it's easy. I had a great race and it's easy to think that things didn't go wrong everything went wrong. My headlamp died. I had an eight mile section where I had no light. I was puking, like everything went wrong. But the point was that every time something popped up, I just kind of took it as like, okay, this is just what's happening right now. Like just as if I knew that this part of the course had a two mile climb, this is just something that's happening and I need to address it now. And if that means stopping to walk for a minute, I stopped to walk for a minute. Uh, and it sounds like super obvious, but I have been the person that's just like urgent, urgently trying to like force my way through an obstacle instead of just like, okay, hold on a second, like, what's happening? What can I do about this? Um, how can I just address this and then move forward instead of like barging through it, which is before and one of my favorite sayings that I say to myself mostly, but I see in ultra running is that it's super easy 
to be stubborn and call it toughness. It's super easy to be stubborn and like reject reality and say like, I'm just being tough. Like, no, you're not, you're rejecting reality. Um, so it's really being honest with yourself and being able to call out the difference. Like sometimes you do need to be tough. Sometimes there's a situation, you know, fatigue later in the race, sore feet. Like there are things that you need to tough it through. But there's sometimes when you're just being stubborn and kind of refre- refusing to accept reality. Um, there's a book that came out recently, The Comeback Quotient uh, by Matt Fitzgerald, that's kind of like sports bike related. And he talked about this concept of like an ultra realist. And he shares a lot of examples of athletes who face kind of like really unfortunate things that happen in a race uh, and then are able to kind of like overcome it. And I don't even know if that's the right word because it's not necessarily like pushing through the thing. It's just like uh, handling it calmly and like poised and then be able to still come back and have the performance. And and the difference is people that are like rejecting reality and those that are accepting it. So one thing I, I suggest to athletes or maybe one way to address this is like, it's also easy to think that preparation means more control. And I think I thought that as an athlete too, of like, if I'm super prepared and fit, this race is going to go smoothly. And so that was the image I had in my head, you know, for 10 or 12 weeks of training of like, oh man, it's going to be so fun. I can't wait. And then you get out there and it's like, all of a sudden the reality in front of you, like does not match the image that you had in your head. So like reverse engineer that and think about all the different things that could pop up, not could, will pop up um, and have that kind of be part of, the visualization or imagery process. Uh, and then kind of going back to what we talked about with the reaction responding is if you can kind of think about those things and write out uh, the desired response that you hope you have in those moments, then you've also kind of practiced uh, and rehearsed that a little bit. So when something does pop up, it's like, okay, well, I thought about this. Like, I knew this could happen. This is okay. It doesn't mean the race is going bad. It just is part of racing hundreds. And that that's like, God, that took me four years to learn that it's just part of racing hundreds. So I think the more athletes can just treat uh, any obstacle that would pop up, just like, like a part of the trail unfolding in front of them, the easier it is to just kind of like embrace it as part of the experience and not something that is like negative feedback. Yeah. I, I love that. I always thought that in skiing and I think you experienced that probably running the 5k and the 10k on the track. It's like at some point it's going to get hard and you just have to like deal with it when it comes your way. And a hundred is just that, on steroids. It's going to get hard at some point and you just have to not fight it. And I wonder, I've, you know, I, I love, I love psychology. It's, you know, not, not something that I majored in, but I think it's something that there's a lot of value in and listening to you just then it kind of reminded me, I feel like sports psych is shifting more and more towards this idea of like away from dissociation, away from like distraction techniques for athletes and more towards just like, uh, not not self-awareness necessarily, but like acceptance, like the acceptance model of like addressing head on what's going on and then kind of moving forward. Is that something that you've seen in practice and in and throughout your studies? Is, is that kind of is that is that a way we should be steering athletes more, is like more or less what I'm trying to trying to get at there? I think so. I mean, yeah, I, I guess I think when I work with athletes on a day to day basis, I'm like, yeah, I wish I could tell you how to just never experience discomfort. I wish I could tell you how to never have self-doubt or lack of confidence. Like that's not going to happen though. That's not, that's, there's no magic formula for that. Like those things are going to pop up. So the more that, yeah, you can just learn to accept that as part of the experience. Uh, And really, honestly, it's as simple as understanding, like we have thoughts and then we have like feelings and emotions about those thoughts. And then we have our behavior, but there's like, like, even if you just thought about it as simple as like, okay, a thought and then a behavior there's this space between where you get to decide which thoughts you let guide your behaviors or which thoughts you act on. And to me, yeah, this idea of acceptance, um, you don't have to not have them. Cause I think that was the piece that was hard for me was I felt like if I was in a race and I had one second of doubt, the race was over. I was like, Oh man, it's over. Like, gosh, I wish I hadn't had that thought, but that's not true. You can have that thought and still execute the race that you want. You can have, low confidence and still bring yourself out of it and execute the race that you want. So the acceptance piece, I think is just a lot more empowering and makes you realize you don't have to shove it all away, but you can learn how to deal with it. And when it comes to like, there's a lot of like really positive research on this acceptance piece and like the act model with pain management of like, you don't have to not want it to be there. You don't have to want it to be there either, but you can coexist with it. You can coexist with pain. You can coexist with discomfort. You can coexist with negative thoughts. And it's really empowering to recognize that you can kind of decide which things you want to guide your actions and decision-making. It doesn't mean you don't have them. So I think it's, 
I think it makes me feel better because to think I have to like get to a point where I never have any negative thoughts is like not ever going to happen. Yeah, I so Leadville was my first hundred as well. And my then colleague, now coach, Adam St. Peter, <gasps> who paced me during it. Oh, it's okay. My dog's in the background. She'll <laughs> probably do something too. Um, he said after the race, he was like, Malcolm, how many times did you think about quitting ultra running during during Leadville? And I was like, oh, like four or five times. And he's like, okay, that's that sounds like that's about right. Like that seems good. <laughs> so like just like hearing that right away in my first hundred being like, oh, that's a normal response. Like this is not a negative thing. This is a positive thing. So I'm like, I think that that area of research that you're talking about for pain management, for coexisting with this is such a perfect model for ultra running, right? Like I think that that is such a, it's so positive. It's not negative. Like, I think that that, that idea to me is something that I hope that we, you know, I hope there's so much research yet to be done in the ultra running field in particular. We often pull research from, from road marathons, from Ironman athletes, from road cyclists. So I hope that this, some of this work continues to be done specifically in our population, just because I do think that we're a very interesting group of athletes and that we could talk about all of this for forever and ever and ever. Um, which means I'll just have to have you back on the podcast at some point in time so that we can pepper you with questions from the audience too. Cause I think that people will have questions, right? Like what can they do? What can they put in their toolbox? So we'll get you back on, but to, to round out our conversation today, I just wanted to ask you a couple, um, a couple questions, kind of like easy, easy things to, to sign off with. And, and one of them was, and, and you've kind of talked about this a little bit, but what is something that you wish you knew like if you're if we're addressing like a new ultra runner right now like what what's something that you wish you knew getting into the sport that you didn't that you didn't know then great question um i mean if we're gonna do, like kind of stick in the sports psychology trends like kind of what you just said i wish that this would have been normalized when i first got into ultra running but honestly even when i was like a collegiate athlete i i went through a lot of my career thinking that my mind and my emotional state and mental state were separate from my body and my performance and spent many years being told like leave whatever's going on at the track like leave it at the gate when you come in like that doesn't have a place here um and obviously i very much believe differently it's why i did a career shift you know later in life but um probably just this piece like recognizing how important the psychological piece is i was a great example of someone that put a lot of time and effort into the physical side like on paper was a very good runner and maybe should have in my head been performing better than I was when I first started ultras. And I, I wasn't, and this was the piece that I was missing. So my favorite thing to tell people about psychology is like, all of us have a different physiological makeup. A lot of our athletic potential is genetic and, and not all of it, but a lot of it, or based on like how early we were exposed to the sport, like what kind of training we've had, but the psychological piece is available to everybody. It's, it's right there at your fingertips it's got the biggest impact. It can have an impact as little as a day. So I wish, I wish that I had put more emphasis in the psychological and mental piece uh, on my career. My college and post-collegiate career would have been a lot different if I had. We're happy to have you in our sport now. We're, we're <laughs> happy that you, you made the move, not to say to the dark side, but you found a good home w- with all of us. And we are going to be, oh, just like eternally grateful for the work that you're going to continue to do in our sport. And so kind of piggybacking on off that last question, I'm wondering if there's a book that you've read recently that has had a good impact on you. I know you're reading a bunch of stuff right now, um, but also any other resources that you can recommend to our listeners and we'll link stuff in our show notes um, for, for the listeners too. Yeah, there's some, there's some great books. Um, one that I've always kind of leaned on that, that I think does a pretty good job is called the brave athlete. It does. Um, it's written, I think by, He's a psychologist, but more in like the triathlete world. That's does a really good job of breaking down sports. Like, um, let me think. One that I read recently, it's not sports psychology necessarily related, but the book's called Emotional Agility, um, which it, it had a pretty big impact just on me personally, like kind of how I was living my life personally. So that's probably been the most personally impactful book. Um, but there's so many great things. And if anything, like I, I think the most valuable part of my book is uh, my reference list. There's, I read probably 50 books in the process and there's just so much good work out there that relates. It's, that's the thing. Sports psychology doesn't, it's not isolated to sport. It's general life and well-being. So the work of people like Brene Brown, I think she's brilliant. Um, Carol Dweck, there's just a lot of really great resources. So if anybody buy my book for their reference list, or maybe I should just like <laughs> put it online somewhere of like, this is the work I'm just regurgitating it. There's so many brilliant minds. 
Yeah. And I know, as we mentioned, I think that your book's brilliant in the sense that it really does give athletes, it, it, there's, there are worksheets involved, you know, like there, there are very practical tools that athletes are going to be able to utilize today, tomorrow, uh, over the winter, in next race season that are going to be incredibly valuable to them. I will be recommending them to my athletes because I think it's such a valuable tool for them to have. Um, and then I guess kind of before we let you go, where can our listeners find you? Where can they buy your book? All that kind of stuff. Yeah, the book's for sale on Amazon. Uh, it's mental training for ultra running. Um, in my like consultant world as a sports psychology consultant, um, my practice is called Strive Mental Performance. That's just strivementalperformance.com. And then socially, I'm really only on Instagram, just at Addie Bracey. We'll make sure that's all linked in our show notes. And we want to thank you again, Addie, for joining us today and sharing just a, a glimmer of your wisdom in the realm of sports psych. And we can't wait to have you back on our show uh, maybe early early in 2022 before the race season kicks off. Awesome. Yeah, thanks for having me. It was great chatting. Thanks for joining us this week on the Trainwright Podcast. We hope you enjoyed the show. Make sure to visit our website at trainwright.com slash podcast, where you can find social links and more for our guests. If you'd like to support the show, please subscribe to the podcast, share it with your friends, and leave us a rating on iTunes. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.